This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. District attorney recall election in San Francisco is one with national interest. Voters were asked to vote yes or no on whether to recall current DA Chesa Boudin from office. Frustrations over crime and homelessness have shaped the effort to recall him. Now, this race has been called to oust Boudin right now. More than 60%, about 61%, as you take a look at the screen right there, of voters want to remove Boudin from office. Office, and now Mayor London Breed will appoint a replacement. An election would be held as part of the midterm election in November at the earliest. Fundamental hypocrisy in, in so much of this political rhetoric. I mean, they literally demoted the person I had put in place to run our victim services unit. They, they stopped doing the work that was a victim services um, oriented grant. That was the biggest grant the office had received in history. They just weren't interested in doing it. They didn't, they didn't want the money. They didn't want to keep doing the work. Um, and now we're hearing stories about victims who don't even get contacted in violent crimes. On this week's episode, in his first full interview, after being recalled in San Francisco, we have former District Attorney Chesa Bodhi. We talk about the recall, what's going on with the right-wing movement to remove anyone progressive in the DA's offices across the country, and how voters can motivate to keep this from happening. It's a great interview, and we really appreciate Chesa's time. Thanks very much for listening. Welcome to Death by Incarceration. We've got our first two-time guest, Chase Bodine, on. That's an honor. I didn't know this is a, this is the first time you all have a repeat player. Yeah, we don't usually do this. We don't give people a second shot. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, the type of reform that we do on Death by Incarceration is one shot you've done. But being though that um, we understand that the system don't work, <laughs> we like we got to get him back. You know, because especially for me is. It's a little personal because I'm out in Philadelphia and I'm seeing what they're doing with Larry Krasner and what they're trying to do. And it's like, damn, you know, I spent 31 years in prison to come home to gain my voting rights. And now these clowns want to take my voting power away by saying we don't want him there because we think his philosophy is is infusing crime. And I'm like, what? That means that my voting my vote, you just taking my vote and saying your vote don't count. We're not counting your vote. And it's it's, it's so messed up out here that I'm like, we got to talk to Chester about this. Because he might have a little solution for my anxiety um, that they're causing. So welcome yeah. back. Yeah, it's good to be here. I, I, wish, I wish we had like a feel-good, uplifting story to tell. But sometimes 
being informed, being aware of the attacks and the and the the threats is is essential. And yeah. I think we we definitely have a lot to talk about in, in Philadelphia, like you said, from coast to. And I believe you know from awareness comes empowerment, comes hope. Yeah, I agree. I think, but I, but, but I also believe, man, that this is a lesson that the people should take heed to. Like here you are, you was elected by the people. You you wasn't just placed there. You was elected by the people of San Francisco to serve. But because a, a, a certain party and certain people don't didn't agree with your philosophy or whatever it may be, you know, people that have the means to do it, they put all this money campaign, you know, to get you out. Once they got you out, look look where we at. Have anything changed? Is this anything different? No. You know, what do we, the people, they vote? got to do to send the message that when we vote for somebody, that's who we want representing us in them offices. You know, so I'm tired of the Republican Party. I really am. I'm tired of these rich people trying to make decisions for my people in my community. And I'm on record. You know, it's time that we, the people, learn from this lesson. Because if we let them do that in the next four years, we have nobody in these spaces Suave was asking what, you know, what lesson can we take to to voters on this? Because, you know, if you look at San Francisco, I think like maybe 20 to 25% of the eligible voters even voted on the recall election, which means like 15% of total voters voted yes on the recall, which is insane. Yeah, definitely voter turnout's key. I mean, people need to exercise their right to vote and people need to be vigilant for misinformation, for disinformation. I really believe, and I think my recall and the impeachment efforts against D.A. Krasner that Suave was talking about are just two examples among many of the historic challenges to democracy, to democratic institutions, and to the rule of law that we're seeing right now in the United States and as far away as Brazil. I think that, you know, you know, in many ways, the, the right wing is involved in a massive, sophisticated power grab effort. And a lot of it's happening below the radar at the local level. DAs, school boards, police commissions, even public librarians are being targeted. And I think that as much as we have focused as a country on the criminal shenanigans and, and you know, things happening in the White House and in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, that in many ways, the bigger threat is what's happening at the local level to our local superior court judges, to our local elected DAs. And, you know, I think there's a story to tell about what happens when anti-democratic forces target elected officials or even appointed officials who are simply doing their jobs, enforcing the Constitution, or trying to deliver, as I was, on exactly the kinds of promises that led to my election in the first place? You know, and and I want to be really clear: the the far right attacks are not random; they're not sporadic. This is a carefully orchestrated and coordinated playbook. And you know, one of the key steps is that they try to identify scapegoats like progressive prosecutors, right? Like me, like Larry Krasner, like Kim Fox, so many others. And then they try to, quote unquote, make them famous. And that's exactly what the Republican Attorney General of Virginia urged the Republican Party in Virginia to do, said, make these progressive prosecutors famous. And they did that. And they launched, I think, six different recall attempts against reform-minded prosecutors in the state of Virginia after he said that. So, you know, this is a strategy. It's playing out in pretty much every state from coast to coast. And even when it doesn't succeed, as I'm confident the recall of the impeachment against Larry Krasner will fail, even when it doesn't succeed as the two separate failed recall efforts against DA George Gascon in LA failed, it is still distracting, it is undermining, 
it prevents people from following through on their campaign promises, it undermines their base of support, and it muddies the water in terms of what the real issues are that voters need their elected officials to solve. So I think it's dangerous. I think we need to be vigilant, but I think we need to stand up and protect people, even if we don't agree with everything they're doing, or if we don't love all of the results of their policies, we as voters, we as informed, concerned citizens, we need to recognize that democracy is a higher order principle, and it is under attack. I mean, I think the recall in San Francisco highlights the problem with recall elections as a whole. People people get burnt out, and then you also have to look at how this targets marginalized communities that already have a hard enough time getting out for a regular two or four year election cycle, you know, and, you know, what's really being asked is that the same people supporting the policies that you were pushing in San Francisco and were actually becoming quite successful at in San Francisco are the ones that have the hardest time getting out to vote. So they're being asked to come out to vote over and over again, usually in situations where they have, you know, they're working for every penny, you know, they've got, they've got kids, they've got, you know, they've got people in their family that are justice involved that you know they really need this kind of break in terms of having somebody that's advocating for them and the the sad thing to me and you and I talked about this personally is that it's not just that the the new DA is coming in in this case and I'll use San Francisco I don't want to make this an SF grievance interview because that's not what this is about you know is not only like rolling back policies that were good for a lot of people but like removing almost entire like sub departments that you had created around victims rights you know, and letting people go that were fighting for the, advocating for the rights of victims, which, you know, in my personal experience and Suave's as well, are are areas in which district attorney's offices have been sorely lacking in resources for many, many years. And unless it's a high profile case where they can kind of use the victim as a, as a promotional tool, a lot of the victims get ignored. Yeah, definitely. And and that's, I mean, that's really, I think that point you're making, Kevin, gets at the at the really fundamental hypocrisy in, in so much of this political rhetoric. I mean, they literally demoted the person I had put in place to run our victim services unit. They, they stopped doing the work that was a victim services oriented grant. That was the biggest grant the office had received in history. They just weren't interested in doing it. They didn't, they didn't want the money. They didn't want to keep doing the work. And now we're hearing stories about victims who don't even get contacted in violent crimes, don't even get contacted by the DA's office. So it's, you know, it really is not about advancing transparency. Data is another thing they attacked us for. Well, the first thing that this interim appointed DA did was she fired the PhD I had running our data science team that had put out a new data dashboard, was the most transparent in the state of California, and they fired her. Why do they want to fire somebody whose whole job is making data publicly available? What does that tell you about what they're really focused on and what their priorities are. It's, it's it's disgraceful, it's dishonest, and it's hypocritical. Well, and let's let's actually, data is a really good pivot point because there's two really recent articles out, one in The Atlantic about shoplifting. I don't know if you saw that article, but basically saying that the shoplifting stats that a lot of people are using to go after progressive district attorneys right now are juked by corporate interests and that, you know, the this whole like panic over shoplifting that happened in California, interestingly enough, Texas, who's a, like a tough on crime state, allegedly, has a higher threshold for prosecution in terms of dollars stolen. They're, they're at like $2,500, if I remember correctly. California's at what, 900, 950? Yeah, but, exactly. But yet somehow, I don't even know how this happened. I literally had people tell me that don't live in this state, well, you know, Chase, uh, 
pass this law in in San Francisco that made the threshold $900. I'm like, I think you're talking about a 2016 law that was passed by Governor Brown. But, you know, I mean, I don't know where you're getting your information, but that's the kind of stuff people are hearing and believing. That's because people are misinformed. People are not educated enough on the political side. You know, because first of all, Chester cannot make law. Chester follows the law. <laughs> You know, let's let's be clear, people. He just can't say, "Well, today I'm going to pass this law where we're going to increase the dollar value." Can't do that, right? Can't do that. If these police officers that are protected by these police units would do their job in arresting people, right? Maybe we won't see the courts dismissing so many cases. And this is what we've seen in Philadelphia: the police arrest people the wrong way. They get to court. They got no choice but to throw the case away. Who gets the blame? Who gets the blame? The DA. (laughs) You know, I guarantee you, if Chester is still DA in San Francisco, and I go up there and take a shit in the Golden Gate Bridge, they will blame Chester for it. Oh, blame him. I guarantee you. Come on, people. Come on, people. Come on, we smarter than that. We smarter than that. You know how hard we fought to get progressives, prosecutors in office? I mean, this is no joke. We're talking about life and death situation for some of our loved ones. And we over here talking about, we're going to recall him because I don't like his politics. The community should be ashamed. They should be ashamed because, okay, we got him out. Have anything changed? I mean, enlighten me. I'm waiting. Enlighten me, people. Have anything changed since we got Chester Bodine out of office? Absolutely not. They went from better to worse. I mean, Kevin, you could talk better about this. You live in Marine County. I'm still moving to Marine County, but. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's what happens, man, when we don't educate the voters on the real deal. We go yeah, with I mean, sensationalism. And, yeah, and I think that's right, Swabe. I mean, there's so much, what we saw, you know, during the, the build up to the recall against me and what we see in all of these jurisdictions where we have people who are trying to actually fix this really inhuman dysfunctional system is that there's this onslaught of of sensationalism and of fear mongering you know videos that they make go viral and and sometimes we found one video they put out you know they were trying to blame me for something that happened in a shopping mall turned out that video was made years before i was even in office the new york times similarly they had an op-ed criticizing progressive prosecutors and they put a link to a video of san francisco trying to say this is what happens when we have reform-minded prosecutors. Turns out the video was from two years before I was in office. So right. we see this pattern, you know, even from, you know, mainstream liberal outlets like the New York Times, way worse with a lot of the right-wing local media. And this is a intentional and explicit part of the right-wing power grab that I was talking about a minute ago. The far-right political strategist and former advisor to Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, who was convicted of fraud and then Trump pardoned him, He described part of their strategy as follows. He says, we need to flood the zone with shit. And what he meant by that is dump massive amounts of misinformation out there and amplify it and repeat it. And they've got not just fat Fox News, but all the national network of blogs and little local places in San Francisco, we have the Marina Times, we've got all these bots on social media on Twitter, and they repeat these things like an echo chamber. And and then pretty soon, you know, you've got people coming up to you when you're overseas. And I mean, literally, my father-in-law lives overseas. And he says to me, oh, yeah, I was I was at this event. And somebody said to me, 
Well, the problem is Chesa won't prosecute anybody if they steal less than $950. You can just steal whatever you want in San Francisco if it's less than $950. You know, and, and there's all these people, like what Kevin was saying earlier, there's so many pieces of just profoundly and obviously misinformation. But see, flooding the zone with shit the way that they're doing is particularly impactful when we are all experiencing unprecedented information overload. People are capable of doing the research to figure out what the facts are, but they don't have time or interest in doing that. And so they look at a headline on, on, a, on a social media post and, and they, they just take it as, as gospel. I mean, I think that the kind of fear mongering over race, over immigration, over crime, resonates even you know, with more moderate or swing voters in a way that statistics showing crime is down at historic lows just don't resonate. People are so overwhelmed with information that you know, viral videos make us feel less safe regardless of what data and statistics and policy shows us. It's, it's, it's that reaction from the gut, from, from our emotional center instead of our cerebral center that is driving the success of these strategies. Right, well, and, the- and, and we saw that in this last election. If we didn't learn nothing from this last election, we should have. We seen it. January 6th. Come on, do I need to get into it, people? We seen what happened when yeah. they flood the zone with shit. We see what happened. People died. People actually died over this stuff. You know, so my question to the community, the voters, and I'm talking specifically the ex-offenders that have the vote, why are we allowing this? especially in Philadelphia, when we have 275,000 ex-offenders with voting power. We need to come out and show these right-wing clowns that we're not taking it. Our votes matter. We sacrifice. We went to them prisons for years and decades and decades to come out and gain that one thing that will make us human again and citizens again the voting power and we're going to let these people just take it because they don't like a certain individuals are you kidding me come on america come on we bigger than that we don't need to drown in the shit that they flooding us with and if you have any doubt the same way you click on tiktok to find out those sensational videos and and, and the viral videos click and do your research before you decide, I don't want that person in office. Because we fought tooth and nail to get progressive prosecutors across the country in office. Why? Because we believe that they was gonna provide justice to those that deserve it. Innocent people. And they done just that. I don't know one guilty person that Larry Krasner or Chester Bodine let out of jail. One guilty per I don't know one guilty person yet, but I do know a bunch of innocent people that deserve their the attention. So come on, people. Stop playing. Stop acting like you don't know shit when you see it. Stop acting like you can't smell it when you smell it. Stop acting like that. Because it 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 it, it put our community in dangerous. That's what it does. It plays with the public safety of our community, and we cannot allow that. It does. 
So uh, on another note, I've noticed there's been reporting on NSF on the rise in arrests, that the police are arresting more people now. And they're they're trying to say that it has nothing to do with the change in district attorney, but it's like it coincides exactly with the changeover. And, you know, then they have one group making excuses saying, you know, they couldn't they couldn't work with your office, but the number of prosecutions has not gone up. <laughs> So yeah. explain to me, like, how how in the world are we supposed to make sense of this data? This is the this is the truth. More arrests have happened, but less or the same amount of prosecutions. Right. I mean, what the and there was a report done by the San Francisco Chronicle that looked into this and, and really unpacked the numbers. And what they showed is that during the time I was in office, we saw near historic lows for most categories of crime. Some of them were at historic lows. Uh, some of them were higher than they had been in part due to pandemic-related changes. But overall, crime during my tenure dropped by about 20% compared to the two years prior to my administration. But reported crime being low, you know, didn't make it easier, apparently, for police to solve crimes that were reported. I mean, you think that if there's fewer crimes being reported, same police resources, you'd be able to solve a higher percentage of those crimes that do get reported. But we saw the opposite. We saw police bring the DA's office a historic low number of arrests, even as a percentage of reported crime. And that meant that my, my you know, if you're a baseball fan, think about how many times you get up to bat, how many times you get a swing at the pitch, right? If the police don't bring us arrests, we have fewer opportunities to hit that home run, whatever that looks like to you, right? You might be somebody who believes a home run is sending somebody to prison for a long time. You might believe it's getting someone into a successful diversion program, getting them drug treatment, getting them housing. You might believe it looks like restorative justice. Whatever your vision is, we can't even get up and swing the bat unless they're bringing us cases. And during my tenure, the police made a historically low number of arrests and percentage of arrests relative to the reported crimes. As soon as the new appointed DA took over, they started making more arrests. And the funny thing is, because they're making such crappy arrests, they're bringing really low, you know, it's like Schwabe was saying, they're bringing low quality arrests, low quality evidence. The DA's office now is actually charging a lower percentage of cases than I was. And I'm not out here trying to advertise, hey, we were tough on crime and look, we charged everything the police brought us. But the reality is having a DA like me in place did serve as something of a filter. Police knew they couldn't bring us garbage because we weren't going to accept it. And now they got a new DA and they're throwing everything at the wall, making all kinds of arrests, including stuff that is a waste of resources, distracting them from solving actual crimes, arresting people for being homeless, for example. And, and that's meaning that their clearance rate for things that are legitimate crimes, shoplifting, auto burglaries, murders, shootings, their, their clearance rate is, is embarrassing. Their response time when someone calls the police is embarrassing. I was in Walgreens the other day near my house where I go to pick up our prescription, and I saw a guy shoplifting. And I asked the people who work behind the counter what happened, because they, they weren't even on the phone. They didn't look worked up about it at all. And, and they say, well, he comes, you know, he comes around a lot. And, and I said, well, what about the police? And they said, if we call them, they might be here in an hour. I mean, he's probably eating the food he just took across the street. He's not in a rush to go anywhere, you know? And so while police are harassing people for being homeless, they're not responding to actual crimes in progress. And I think that really is, is part of the problem that frustrates citizens and residents and business owners and where we need a little more direction to say, hey, your priority should be a quick response time to crimes in progress, not going and destroying tents of people who are unhoused. But you know what? In Philadelphia, I have spoken to 
police officers on the street, on the job, about certain things. And the, the number one thing they say, why, why should we make an arrest uh, when Larry Krasner is going to let them go? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. their response. We hear, oh, yeah, we hear that all the time in San Francisco. And, all the time. See, but I want the people to, to understand that that is the police response. Right. Why should we, we make an arrest if Larry Krasner, in other words, we're going to let it go down so when the political time comes, we could blame Larry Krasner on it. Yep. Yep. Instead of you jumping out that car, being on your cell phone, Mr. Officer, and, and, and go make that arrest for somebody that's really committed a crime, you want to let it go down well, because you think that Larry Krasner is going to let them out. That's the excuse. Well, that's, well, that's not gonna, yeah. You're not going to protect your oath. You're not going to no, do we your have job. A job. We all have a job. We all have a job to do. We all have a job to do. You know, it's like the cook, the cook in a restaurant can't make you dinner if the waiter refuses to take your order. Can't do it. Larry mm-hmm. Krasner can't file criminal charges. He can't do it if police refuse to make an arrest. Now, that doesn't mean they should go arrest everybody willy-nilly. They have to do their job. They have to follow the Constitution. They have to have evidence, establish probable cause, all the things that they're trained to do, all the things we pay them to do. And if Larry Krasner or whoever the district attorney is decides that the evidence does not support filing criminal charges, guess what? That's what he's elected to do. He has his job. Everybody's got to do their job. And right now what police are trying to do is take away the ability of progressive DAs to even do their job because they don't like the way they do it. Well, it's like me saying to my to my boss, you know, look, you're not even going to look at the work I did, so you know, I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't serve clients or the other employees in any way. You know, it's like it's like I'm not getting reviewed on the job that that you're doing. I'm getting reviewed on the job I'm doing. And it's just another systematic way to flood the the flood us all with the shit we've been talking about. It's, you know, it's like, oh, well, they're not going to prosecute anyway. So that gives me a, a, gets me off the hook. And then, and then on top of it, you've got the, the union complaining about that, you know, publicly that somehow it's, it's the, the district attorney's office's fault that the streets aren't cleaned up. I, I, I can't. I, I didn't know it was your 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 office's job or or the current DA's job to go out and arrest people. <laughs> I mean, I know you're licensed. Uh, you're you're a badge carrying law enforcement agent, but it's not it's it's not your job to 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 arrest people on the street. And matter of fact, when I was the DA, we didn't have a single car in our investigation bureau in our entire department. We didn't have one car that had a cage in the back to allow us to make arrests and safely transport people who've been arrested. So yeah. even if we did a, a, a arrest warrant, we had to ask the San Francisco Police Department to come in with one of their squad cars to actually make the arrest and the transport. It, it's just not what we do, just like we don't build homeless shelters or address you know, drug overdoses. And yet they manage very effectively to blame all of these deep-rooted, long-standing problems, public health problems, housing crisis on the DA's office. So it, it's, it, it's really interesting. You know, I've been I've been following all this on you know through the Chronicle, this the article I mentioned in the Atlantic, and you can actually go around the country now and see the exact stuff you were talking about at the it, 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 in the beginning of the interview, like how these how these right wing groups have gone in and basically undermined, and and that's really what it is. They can call it what they want, but if they want to be tough on crime, the way the way not to do that is undermine the district attorney's office in some way. You know, and if they don't like the arrest record or they don't like the, you know, the results, there's public forums for that. You can take that up with the district. You can call the district attorney's office. You can call your local council person. You can talk about that. But this idea of doing recalls, impeaching people, et cetera, 
it really does, again, go back to that same problem of, of removing the power from the marginalized communities that are going to benefit most from these changes that are being made. And it just looks, regardless of intent, it, it just it shows again and again how utterly tone deaf and racist this country can be, quite honestly. Well, let's call it for what it is. It's a racist move. Yeah. You know, they couldn't get it through elections, so let's find another way in. <laughs> it's a racist move. You know, this, this is a tactic they've been using forever. Forever. We care about you so much that we got to remove the prosecutors because he's costing all <laughs> by his decisions. This should been used forever. Forever. You know, what bothers me is that we, the people, allow it to happen. I don't know in San Francisco, but I know in Philadelphia, we had these little politicians that go around with what they call pork money, knocking in doors. Well, we're going to record such and such. Here's $500. I'm going to come pick you up for that vote. You know, they do stuff like that. And we so desperate that we just follow along through without even investigating, without even doing research. Because it's not hard to type Chess's name and find out what he's been up to, what he's doing. And if yeah. you really go with computers, you can find out what, what he's doing at the moment or where he at. <laughs> I'm oh, serious. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, so you mean to tell me, people, that you don't know this stuff? Yeah. You mean to tell me that? I'm telling you right now, America, people that support progressive prosecutors and are for real justice. If we don't stop playing with this, we will go backwards 20 years. Let's remember what it was like in San Francisco 20 years ago. Let's remember what it was like in Philadelphia 20 years ago when we had Steph William, when we had Lee Abraham, America's most deadly DA in office. Let's remember that. Let's remember the countless of innocent black and brown people that they put in prison, that Chester and other progressive prosecutors had to come in and fix their mistake. Let's remember that. Let's talk about that. Since, since the right wing is so good in putting old videos together of stuff that happened before these prosecutors were elected, let's talk about that. See, nobody want to talk about that because now we talk about, oh my God, we got to get Swabe and Kevin all. You know, listen, bro. Listen, people. Stop playing. This is about your life. This is about the life of your loved ones that's being caught up in the criminal justice system. No one in America should be arrested for being homeless. Again, no one in America, in San Francisco or in Philadelphia, should be arrested for being homeless. And that's exactly what's happening. That's how some of these DAs are getting their numbers up right now. It's not that crime is up. It's that the city's not doing their job. They're not doing their job. They come around once a year, they do photo ops, they clean the street for photo op and vote for me because I be, I'm here for the people. Some food, that's crap. Come down Kensington, come down Philadelphia and you will see what I'm talking about. In Philadelphia alone, we got almost 28 people and each and one of them served over 20 years incarcerated, being innocent. They were freed because of a progressive prosecutor. Now, if, if you don't think that's justice, then you we talk we talking two different languages. Well, we talking two different languages. And San Francisco, as much as I love that city, as much as I love Marine County, y'all should be ashamed. 
Josh, that 15% people that went out and vote for that recall, y'all should be ashamed. Y'all should be ashamed because this stuff should have never happened because that man was voted fair and square. Yeah, well, that's a whole other discussion around the recall system. I think one of the things that I wanted to bring up and and that I saw, you know, the new DA change was the idea of charging juveniles as as adults in San Francisco again. And we've we've covered this is one of the key reasons we started the show because we know the three of us and people need to understand that the brain science proves time and time again that at a certain age you are not capable of making adult decisions. And the fact that that there's like no thought about changing this back to the old ways, it was a little shocking, quite honestly. And, you know, there's been a few things that have been shocking, but that one really felt personal, you know, especially to the work that your office had done around educating the community around this brain science and what it does to juveniles to be locked up as adults, you know, and we, this is the unfortunate thing is this is the norm for most cities and states, but we took a giant step back in San Francisco and, you know, I mean, we talked about this before. One of the things that I really respected about your office, Chesa, you know, VA Krasner's office, some of the other progressive prosecutors that we're seeing in Chicago and other big cities, LA, is that, and we talked about this, you specifically said this on our last interview, is is always considering what's in the best interest of the child. And that's what we're talking about as children. That's what the law requires, you know, and it shouldn't be controversial. I mean, if they're kids as defined by law, then we should prosecute them as kids as defined by law. If they're adults, then we can prosecute them as adults. I mean, it's really not that complicated. And if people don't like it, then we should change the legal age. We should make it possible for 17 year olds to vote and to buy cigarettes and to get married and to do, you know, do all the other things that adults do. But we know the science doesn't point in that direction, it points in the other direction. The science actually shows us that it's not until people are 25, sometimes older, that they have a fully developed frontal cortex in their brain. And, and, and that you know, allows them to balance risk and reward and to make decisions. And we've all lived through that. You know, we've all been teenagers who, who make dumb decisions and, and say dumb things. And you know, so to pretend that because a crime had a particularly horrific outcome, that therefore the person is an adult, no, that's just not how science works. And, <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, what we saw the, the current DA do was, was give in to petty right-wing politics in a way that really we know historically will always be used against young people of color, always. Yeah. It's sad, it's sad, it's, it's disappointing. It's, it's something that I was certainly proud, you know, to be able to do. It, it shouldn't have taken my election to have a DA who was, you know, was willing to just publicly commit to always treat kids like kids. I mean, that's a basic thing. That's a basic, basic thing we should demand from all of our district attorneys. I mean, I, I, I think hard about, I have a 14-year-old, and I cannot imagine, and it could happen, her being, making a mistake and being charged as an adult, you know? I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable to me. You know, I mean, she can't even, most mornings she can't even make her bed without being reminded. You know, you know, and that's no knock on her. She's a smart kid. It's just, you know, but that's just how the the teenage brain works, right? Whatever is the new fresh thing that they're thinking about, that's what they're thinking about. And easily distracted, you know, and not huge attention spans. And that's fine. That's where she should be. But she shouldn't be in prison, an adult prison. Yeah. I'm 50-something years old, and my brain haven't still developed. <laughs> I mean, let's be real about this. 
Fair enough. I, I'm, I'm being honest because spending 31 years in prison, you know, when they talk about the brain developing, my, I, I still think like a 17-year-old sometimes. I'm serious. You know, so again, it goes back to what I always say. They, we like to go back because we want to look hard in front of our voters. I'm tough on crime. Till your grandson or granddaughter or son or daughter or nephew is the one standing in front of that judge. Now we're demanding that your kids get treated like kids. Yeah. Now we want the judge to remand that case to the juvenile court, the same court that you are so against of. Because again, right when the people like to have their cake and eat it too. Agreed. So, okay? so and we got to stop that. And and I'm telling you, people, I'm telling you, America, I'm telling you, America, when the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to keep a person in prison that committed a crime under the age of 18, we all knew that they was going to come out with taxes to retake that back. And they done that. They done that in different states, different ways. Mm-hmm. I suggest you read the Jones case, Jones versus Arizona, you know, and if you're wondering why San Francisco is being so hard on, on kids, maybe you need to call Kevin McCracken and ask him why. <laughs> you know what your answer would be? Because y'all voted to recall the only person that went publicly and saying, we are going to treat kids like kids out of office. That's why your kid today in San Francisco is being remanded to adult court. And 30 years from now, we probably gonna have a conversation with him if we still alive. Why do you spend so much time in prison in San Francisco? Yeah, it's true. So let's 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 move on to good stuff a little bit, Jason. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now. Like just, you know, how, how's your life right now? I mean, it, it had to, there had to be some relief in this as well. Like not just the, you know, I, I, I've got my own agenda around throwing darts at people, but the fact of the matter is I, I know you're up to some good stuff and you had some great news right around the same time that this was all going on with your dad. Yeah, no, exactly right. My dad, who served 40 years in prison from the time I was a baby, was released thanks to executive clemency from New York State Prison in November of 2021. So he's been home, what, 14 months now? And, you know, it's a huge transition for him, for our whole family. We also lost my mom. She died after a seven-year battle with cancer in May of 2022, just a month before the recall succeeded. So, you know, we've been going through a lot as family. I have my own first firstborn, my son, who is now 16 months old. So it has been a lot of transitions for my family, son born, father out of prison, mother passed away. And I've been really blessed just to be able to focus in this last few months on my family, on being there to help watch my son learn to walk. I want to say I taught him, but really, you know, they teach themselves. Watch him learning all the animal sounds, learn to talk, and being able to take him to see his family, his grandparents around the world. Um, and and to support my dad as he figures out how to come home from prison, how to, you know, reinvent himself at the age of 70, you know, after spending more than half his life behind bars. Well, I think, you know, obviously all of the stuff that happened with your family early on influenced you and your, and, you know, in my opinion, of course, my opinion in a positive way around how you treat people that have been impacted by the, by the system. But I mean, just give us a little bit of insight. Has it been tough for your dad with all the new technology and all the other stuff? I mean, I met him and, and I was 
I was I felt quite privileged to meet him because I know he's done a lot of work with with prisoner groups, especially when he was inside. But how's the challenge been for him? How's he hanging in there? Definitely. I mean, I think the technology is hard. I think the biggest thing for him was just losing my mom. I mean, he came home yeah. and and she was in her what turned out to be her final six months, and it was in and out of the hospital, chemo, surgery. You know, it was nonstop. So that kind of it was a rude awakening for him coming home and having to to be in the middle of that as her primary caregiver in between hospital visits. But but at the same time, there's nowhere he would have rather been. I mean, right. certainly if the choice is being in a prison cell and you know go make your once a day phone call and get an update from somebody else versus let me be there with her, right. talking to the doctors, taking notes on how many times we need to change the bandage after the surgery, he was, you know, it couldn't have come at a better time in that sense, but it was hard. And it's really only in the last couple of months as he's finished the process of mourning, we, we did my mom's memorial back in September, you know, since then, he's been able to really move, start to move forward, think about what kind of work does he want to do? Does he want to move out here and be, you know, closer to his his only grandson? Does he want to stay in the community that my mom built and, and kind of pick up some of the pieces of the work that she was doing in New York City, where he's currently on parole? So those are, you know, those are some of the decisions. Definitely still calls me for help with technology sometimes. <laughs> Earlier this morning, he, he said he was looking at trying to come out to visit, but he might need my help figuring out how to buy a plane ticket. So I said, I got you, Pops. Yeah. I can help. And, you know, I think for him, it's just the simple things. It's it's being able to, you know, wear whatever color clothes he wants. It's, it's being able to decide how long he takes a shower. It's being able to eat food that, you know, his body can, can process and digest and, and not be, you know, forced to eat food at the prison mess hall that gives that gives him allergic reactions. It's it's simple things, you know, and 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 being able to pick up the phone and call me whenever he wants. Do a video call so he can see his grandson. Those little things make a huge difference every single day. Yeah. And you know what, Chester, I appreciate that because sometimes I wonder, you know, how is your dad adjusting? You know, so for me, I had the I had the honor of participating in this book, which is right here. And they asked me to paint a picture. And guess what picture I painted? Recognize that face? Yeah, sure enough. Appreciate you. I mean, did I do some justice or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes a professional to make me look good. So I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you being on the job, Father. Yeah. No, listen. Absolutely, man. And it was a great honor for me because the book came out right in the middle of everything happening with you, and I, I specifically told the publisher that you're not gonna put his chapter there then you could take my picture out period you know and so they put the whole your whole chapter there and to me it was a great honor because like I said I've been in the system I've been in both sides of the world and I wish that I would have had someone that cared about kids when I was incarcerated because I was a kid I probably would have never spent my whole youth and half or adulthood in prison. That's just a fact. But because I didn't, you know, have somebody there, they'd say, you know what? It's a kid. We're going to treat them like kids. I mean, they need to be punished, but they don't need to be thrown away. I spent 31 years in prison because of that. So that's why it's important to me that we support those that really care about our community and about our children. Because at the end of the day, it's about our children. It's about how we treat kids, you know? So again, you know, I appreciate everything you're doing out there, everything you've done out there. And I'm pretty sure there's thousands and thousands of people that appreciate the service that you bought while you was in office. 
and they regret now not having you. See, because you only miss something when it's gone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we got it and, 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 oh, it's gonna live forever, and it don't. And for you to have your dad right now means a lot. I went to prison, my mother died. Like half of my family died while I was in prison, and I never had the chance to come out to the funeral. I never had that chance, because in Pennsylvania, life is I'm not allowed to go to funeral. So it brought joy into me when I went to San Francisco and met you and your father at the battery, a little promotion for them, you know. It, you know, it, it was really it was really an honor for me, man, because I wondered how I would have been if I still had my mother around. You know, I wonder that. Or, or at least get to spend the last moments of her life with her. But I didn't have that chance. Mm. And all because we didn't have progressive people thinking like they kids, they deserve a second chance. Because in Pennsylvania, you could have 200 years and they take you out to a funeral. But if you got life, they don't, mm. which I never understood that. So, you know, enjoy, man. Enjoy your father. I hope he moved down to San Francisco with you because it made me wonder, you know, like, I never knew my dad. I'm, I'm probably never going to know him, right? But I wonder, like, if I had the chance to spend time with my dad, how would it be? Where would I take him? What type of question would I ask him? Well, he asked me, like, yo, yo, I need to get a plane ticket. I don't know how to do it. You know, I wonder all them stuff. So all, the, all, that, all that is relevant to our listeners, that even though you put your life on the line as a public service, serving to, to serve the community, you are a human being and you have your own life. And this don't define Chester Bowden, you know. And I just hope that San Francisco understand 15% of the people that voted betrayed it a good man. Yeah, I mean, this is all obviously deeply personal to the three of us and for different reasons, but you know, I, I can't even, um, yeah, I can't even put, there's there's no amount of, of value that you can really measure how important these relationships are. And we this country is in an unfortunate position where we spent many, many, many decades locking people up and throwing away the key. And these the, the story you just told about him being able to FaceTime with your son is like, I mean, if we had that kind of connection and we were supporting that kind of connection and we weren't trying to block people from seeing their families when they were incarcerated, we would have a lot less of people going back to the lifestyles that got them there in the first place. You know, and so the, that's that's the important message here is regardless of what the, what the voters did or the right wing pundits did, there's a way out of that. But the fact of the matter is that we, those those relationships and that time together is irreplaceable. And that's what it does to communities, is it takes that away. You know, that's what this system does to communities, truly. And the two of you are, are great personal examples of how that can change and what really happens when you allow yourself to be vulnerable and open with your with your family members. So thanks for sharing that, Chase. And thanks, Suave. I felt a little choked up. I was like, ooh, this is good stuff, you know? Hey, man, listen, I, I some, sometimes, man, uh, it gets personal like that, Kev, because we don't often look at politicians as mm -hmm. human beings. We look at them as either superheroes or the or the villain. Period. And we forget that they got families, you know, they come from family background. And especially to have somebody like Chester, the type of upbringing he had and his story, it resonated with a lot of us that are still in 
and those that were in, it resonate. That could that easily was us walking through the metal detectors and seeing people, that's us. He's telling our story. And he created a possibility that you don't have to be that. That don't define your life. You feel me? So to me, it's personal. So what's next, Tessa? What's next in your chapter? What's the next chapter of your life? Not a question, huh? No, I get that. <laughs> I get that a lot, and I'm, you know, I'm definitely trying to take my time and not rush into the next thing. I mean, I owe it to my family after what we went through and the the crazy, intense, you know, campaign cycle. You know, trying to run an office during COVID right after I, I had, you know, had one election and then two different recall attempts, and so I'm I'm trying to take the time to be present for my family, and I'm also trying to make sure that you know whatever I do in this next chapter is something that is both consistent with my values and you know allows me to, to do work that is meaningful to me and to my community that allows me to continue to grow and to develop professionally and allows me to balance you know my deep lifelong commitment to justice uh, with my newfound commitment to being a father and making sure I'm present for my son in ways that my parents couldn't be present for me. So being though that you have a profound place in your heart for justice does that mean that in the near future we're going to see Chester Bodine running for something you know uh, mayor governor <laughs> state rep state senator I mean mm-hmm. like we, we, you know tell us something don't leave, don't leave us in suspense <laughs> You know, the, you know, I'll just tell you, I'll tell you this much. This is just, you know, facts you can look up on the internet. You don't need to hear it from me, but I'll just tell you the, uh, the next election in San Francisco for mayor or for district attorney is not until November of 2024. So it's like a year and a half away. So, you know, I don't know who's going to run, but I know we have a little bit of time before anybody's going to make an announcement about that. I'm definitely looking into a lot of possibilities, you know, that, that really run the range and I have a lot of opportunities that seem really exciting to me. So, you know, I expect I'll know more in the next month or two, but for right now, I'm just making sure we, you know, get my son's about to start preschool. Want to make sure that's, that goes that's smooth. That's a no leave visit to spend. That's not a good <laughs> Hey, man. That's not, I mean, I'm, I, want, I want to jump out the chair. Hey, hey Swave, you know. Listen, listen. Yeah, listen. You might need to have I, him yeah, back no a third kidding. time, you well, know. You know, that's yo, it. That's, no, we definitely. I see him once a month for dinner, and I guarantee you that everybody in there either asks or wants to ask what he's doing next. Yeah. Matter of fact, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, matter of fact. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think I think that it's, it's, it's exciting for those that really believe in justice. There, there is a possibility that Chester Bodine will return to San Francisco to serve in a capacity of a servant. I mean, don't lose hope, San Francisco. <laughs> don't lose hope because the man just said it. There's a <laughs> lot of possibility in the next yeah. chapter. I hate to be left in suspense. It's like good. This. This is our teaser it. for the next time we have money. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Any 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 last words for the for the people? I just want to say thank you all for having me back. It's an honor to be the first repeat guest, and definitely looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, Kevin, in person. Yeah. And you know, I know it meant a lot to my dad to be able to see both of you on stage doing your thing, and you know, raising awareness and helping to make the transition home a little bit smoother, you know, for the next generation of people coming out and not just doing it because you care about them, doing it because you care about all of our communities and you know that providing jobs, providing transitions to reentry is actually how we build safe communities. It's how we prevent recidivism. It's how we break the cycle of incarceration. It's how we prevent the next generation from being incarcerated, from committing crimes, from you know, causing harm. 
And you know, I just really appreciate the work that you all do. And it's it's great to be able to to drop in like this once in a while, share what I'm up to, give you a little teaser about yeah. the next chapter, and you know, go from there. Thanks. And for the people, and for the people before I go, the reason why it's important to have people like Chester in office, I am the reason for that. I'm gonna tell you why. Because if it wasn't for a progressive prosecutor, I would have never been home. And therefore, I would have never been crowned. Your 2022 audio reporting, Pulitzer Prize award winner, an international documentary award winner. This is the face of re-entry. This is what happens when people like Chester in office decide to give people like me a second chance at life. We never know what type of greatness we bring in. So I think not only Chester, but I think the DA in Philadelphia, they decided we're not gonna fight your release. You could go home because today I am your 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner. I'm gonna keep saying that. The first, the first formerly incarcerated juvenile lifer in America to be given that award. And it's because of people like Chester Bodine and Larry Krasner that allowed me that opportunity. Bro, you left me in suspense. And if you heard it here first, then you know it's official. Y'all listening to Death by Incarceration with Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. Fox Media Podcast.